I V M. When Karthik gets onto or used to get onto Jet Airways, and uh, they said something nice about his frequent flyer status, he felt good. How does that happen? That happens because they've done some basic CRM with some data and given you, you know, a basic compliment. You check into a hotel and you say that fifty-five times, and they ask you, "Oh, is this your first time, Mr. Karthik?" It annoys you. Why does it annoy you? Because you're like, man, you have my data. At least do me the courtesy of saying welcome back. Hello and welcome to the Filter Coffee Podcast. Today we have with us someone who's uh, been an entrepreneur, an investor, an advisor, and multiple other things. But I think uh, in the industry, he's probably known uh, more for leading global business development for American Express uh, back in the day, uh, you know, based in New York, and then being advisor and investor to multiple startups um, around the world. Many of them, um, curiously, in the big data and the AI space. Anurag Banerjee is presently the founder of Quilt.ai. Uh, which probably has one of the most intriguing home pages that I ever seen. You know, the, the sentence "human empathy at scale" sort of jumps out uh, from the screen to you. We'll we'll talk about that just in a bit. But welcome to the Filter Coffee Podcast, Anurag. Thanks, Karthik. I am really excited for today's chat. How are you doing? How's the How's the lockdown treating you? Uh, well, we're technically on a circuit breaker. Uh, not a lockdown. Uh, that's the nomenclature Singapore is using, and I, and I like that nomenclature. It uh, it is a lot kinder, definitely, <laughs> and uh, feels like okay. I've got I've got something to do here. I'm taking some kind of an action to pause pause this thing, as opposed to lockdown being inflicted on me. So, the the semiotics uh, of that uh, of the phrase are quite quite cool. Trust trust Singapore to to keep it simple to keep it. Approachable and technically correct as well, right? Hey, great! Happy to know that uh, all is well with uh, with you and your loved ones. Um, you know, I I, I want to talk about uh, Quilt AI in just a bit, but uh, I'm going to take advantage of the fact that uh, I've known you for a for a few years now, and uh, sort of go into uh, your your journey itself, right? And I think, uh, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but it is safe to say that uh, while you've had a, a very, very diverse and a colorful uh, career, uh, many of them have been um, in the quest for understanding human behavior, right? Uh, at least that is, that is how um, I, I see it. And um, in that sense, you know, if we look at the world of insights and what we have today available in terms of uh, access to understanding human behavior, I feel it is uh, it is fairly limited. Even in a world where we are looking at a, an explosion of of data, uh, I feel that uh, uh, the insights that brands and governments and NGOs um, and even investors have access to is probably probably not not really there. Would you, would you agree with that with that hypothesis? Yes, I think I think there's so much to know and so many so many nuances and variants. Uh, I think uh, making a claim that that you understand it is 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 a wrong a wrong claim. Yeah, 
And I think, you know, part of the problem uh, is um, in, in probably in the history of, of research itself, right? I think uh, as a world and especially um, as a region, we've been used to, uh, used to sampling-based research a lot, right? And I think, um, I know you have, a, you have a personal contempt towards that sort of a, <laughs> a, a research methodology. But uh, I, I think uh, for, a, for, a, for the longest time, you know, we've been measuring um, large human behavior, or rather large-scale human behavior with what we have access to, which is a very small sample. And of course, you know, statistically, uh, it does hold water. I think uh, it is also limits you uh, and your understanding of that, right? Um, how, how have you you've seen the last five, six years, Anurag, in this space? Like, how have... How has have things changed for the better? Well, I'm, I'm going to take a slight detour as I answer that question about uh, samples. Um, and uh, it takes me back almost about uh, 15 years. Uh, I was at American Express and one of my large clients was this mammoth consulting company. Um, and we were in the process of trying to win their business for them to use the American Express corporate card. And in that process, one one uh, really weird request came about at the last minute. And that request was that uh, all their key partners be given a particular card of a particular status. And it was this weird emotional request because um, it was a card. It's a piece of plastic. You buy your you know plane miles with it. It got you some lounge access. But you would think that partners in consulting firms earning multi-million dollar bonuses wouldn't get uh, hung up on you know, a small, irrational type thing. And I remember being in this room and watching this argument between the lead partner who I was negotiating with and this other you know, very powerful partner. Um, and and you know, they'd spent about 30 years at the firm, wore great suits, uh, actually had gone to the same undergrad college, different business schools, but had a very similar profile. And yet they were arguing um, completely differently on the, on the merits or demerits of having this um, card that would give them a certain privilege, which felt, you know, for you know, men back then in their 50s, uh, fairly irrational. So, I, the, I mean, human behavior is such a such a such an irrational space, and I, 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 just, I just thought of that memory. But, you know, from there to the question on samples, I, I sit on about 17 different panels, and I've, I've said this story to, you know, many friends. And I, I answer questions on those panels. Uh, on some panels, I'm a man. and some panels, I'm a woman. On some panels, I'm an 80-year-old. On some panels, I'm a mom of triplets, right? <laughs> and I, I lie all the time. I make about $170, $180 a month on these panels. And uh, I do it just to prove a point that there is no authenticity. Uh, there is widespread fraud. And I'm probably making some enemies as I'm saying this right now. But this is true. Like, you know, you're welcome to come hang out with me as I take surveys about my, my coffee choices and my shampoo preferences, even though I'm you know, perfectly bald. I obviously don't like the idea of these panels. I was speaking to somebody in, in Canada a few minutes ago about uh, their, their contempt for panels and bias and all the things there. In the last five, six years, I think what's been nice is we've seen an explosion of data. So there's a lot more data, whether it's the big guys like Facebook and Google, all the programmatic guys, all the ad tech platforms, um, all the cookies. Um, there's there's a lot of that. And I think there are other ways of looking at 
information. There's all the big social listening guys, uh, though you know, significantly shrinking over the last couple of years. So uh, it's been nice to see alternatives to to survey samples. Um, I'm amazed as to how many brands still run a brand health tracker with that same survey question to a sample saying, have you seen an ad about my product? Would you buy it if you saw an ad? Did you buy it? Did you try it? I'm like, who speaks like that? Like, how, can, how can that be authentic? Anyway, I'm going to stop now, Karthik, before I, I, I get too carried away. Right. You know, I think therein lies, uh, you know, something about what you said. Uh, therein lies really the, the problem, right? I think uh, uh, the way at least I see it is uh, you have a lot of data, um, yes, uh, and, and, and um, obviously, right, because we have a lot more digital footprints. and uh, uh, But the concentration of data with, uh, uh, with certain platforms is, is pretty high. And the second also is... Um, uh, none of these data, for the most part, at least, uh, really talk to each other, right? Uh, because they're, they're, they're part of walled gardens. I think uh, uh, for me, at least, uh, and I know that, uh, you know, we, we've been part of this journey now and we've been talking about this for the longest time. Uh, to me, I think the, the, the real tipping point in this, or rather the inflection point in this sort of happened when uh, we started having access to, to social uh, media conversations, right? I'm not just talking about, uh, you know, what, what, what you search for, etc. But I think the moment we started listening to what people are saying on, on social media, then I think that gave a, a different perspective to this. And right? I think uh, I'm also uh, a great fan of the word listening itself. Right? I think most of the insights gathering exercises up until that, that point, uh, and that point being, you know, um, just under a, a decade back, was very asking-led. So I'm putting you, like you rightly said, I'm, I'm giving you a, a questionnaire in your hand or virtually, and I'm, I'm giving you the, the mask of, of a respondent. And, uh, you know, that's not really a, the most comfortable or the most open space where from there you sort of cut to uh, social listening where you're expressing yourself in your own time without uh, anyone having asked you a question. And that suddenly seems a more powerful, powerful sort of an insight, right? Would you probably say like, you know, that is probably the, the inflection point in terms of the, the data access that we have today? I, I, I think so. I think, you know, despite all the bad rap that social um, media um, statements get, is an extremely powerful way to get a glimpse into someone's life. Um, and... Uh, it it may be it may be showcase truth or maybe showboating, or, but uh, it's uh, it's still a truth and it's an observed truth, which uh, which I like a lot. Right. Yeah, I want to quickly bring the conversation to artificial intelligence, um, and I know that uh, your your most recent journey with Quilt.ai is in, in in that area, and you guys are doing some some extraordinary work in that area. But you know, just to put this in perspective. I would love to hear where you think we are in this entire journey on, on artificial intelligence, right? I think many of the more popular, more visible facets of AI today, you know, whether it is uh, the, the, the chess playing engine or whether it is the Siri or the Google Assistant that we, that we see, all of them are what we will probably refer to as uh, the narrow AI, right? Or, or artificial intelligence, which is created for a, for a single purpose, right? And I think uh, much of the conversation that is happening, which is in terms of 
displacement displacement of jobs etc are all are all probably because of its ability to to do things which are very very repetitive in a very efficient manner right but uh, honestly would you would you probably say that uh, we are at the, at the infancy when it comes to artificial intelligence in terms of at least what is possible with this of course you know i i, I uh, yeah as a, as a practitioner uh, or or i would that's that's a stretch as somebody experimenting or dabbling in artificial intelligence i think uh, you know uh, the limitations are extremely um, clear in the material we're having an argument today in, um, at the office about how big a training set should be what you know one what kind of confidence levels can we get using different kinds of training sets at different interpretations at different intervals and there is just you know my and, and the exasperated in an exasperated moment told one of my engineers that my 6 year old son is smarter than than tensorflow the google product and that's not not to offend google or anything but there is so much limitation um, and uh, so much we still haven't figured out I, i think there's you know we're we're at the extreme extreme infancy having having said that i don't worry about the job loss element actually mm. i think the reverse is true so if you think about you know before social media social media was going to come and take over a lot of jobs and you know then you have social media marketers social media marketing agencies you've got you know gary vaynerchuk <laughs> you've got people uh, thousands and thousands of people who are who now jobs with the social media the same thing with the automobile and and the horse right there are more people employed in automobile factories back in the day than there were um uh people looking at horses in stables so people think of these as as job tapers and the honest truth is you know they're they're actually not their job creators sure there will be some displacement and there will be pain felt no question about it but uh by and large uh, i would say you know, by several orders of magnitude more jobs will be created using ai uh then be taken away by ai in the next couple of decades right you know and and, and when it comes to ai and um, uh the experiments you're doing with it and of course you're being extremely modest about what what you guys are doing there the squill.ai seems like a like a very different rendition than uh, what i've seen uh, in the space right like at the beginning of the conversation um i told the audience about you know your homepage having uh, these lines human empathy at scale sort of jump out and and the more um one understands the kind of work that you do there seems to be a a, a huge twist you know and, and uh, i'm going to go ahead and and call it uh, ai for good right it seems to be the common thread across many different things that you do but we'll get to that in a bit how did quilt.ai how was the company born what was what was that journey like so i was at ordens in the middle of 2017 i was wrapping some work up and i wanted to build something um and i went back to 2009 when i commissioned the research for the first time and i was given a, you know, a sample survey by by a large large company out of chicago um which i didn't, didn't enjoy very much but the inflection point actually was uh, on a flight from delhi to patna uh, in the process of adopting our son and i was sitting next to a lady who works for this you know massive big global philanthropy and she was going to go speak to uh, some teenage kids uh, about uh, about sex pregnancy uh, miscarriages abortions uh, sexual related health issues primarily 
And then they were going to deploy, I think, $108 million uh, based on those insights. And uh, so I, I was trying to understand why they were only going to talk to you know, 16 or 17 girls before they made a decision. And, uh, and, and she said this very clearly. She's like, you know, empathy comes from being with somebody and understanding them. And the proxy that I have, the empathy comes from understanding people at scale uh, by seeing and understanding many things about them digitally to make for a better informed decision. And that's in the nonprofit side. And on the for-profit side, as I was thinking about what to do, I had, I had many friends uh, who said, somehow in all this data lakes and data intensive world, we've lost track of the person who buys our stuff. Who is he? Who is she? What does he or she care about? Who are they as a person? If I met them at a coffee shop, what would I say to them? If I had a drink with them, you know, what would our conversation be like? What do they like about us? What, what do they care about my brand? And, and, and somewhere this, this, this connective tissue seemed to have been torn um, or didn't seem to have been used uh, aggressively enough. So, so Quilt was born from the, the desire to create connective tissue uh, and deeper understanding uh, and empathy for brands with their consumers, almost in an old-fashioned way, and for large nonprofits and philanthropies and bilaterals and multilaterals with their beneficiaries uh, by taking advantage of the internet. Right? Mm. And that's, uh, that's where the premise of Quilt is. So we're a 50-50 company. 50% of our time and effort goes into working with large corporations who challenge us, uh, keep us on our toes, and 50% of our time goes into trying to solve really complicated, intractable human problems with large foundations and philanthropies. That seems uh, both audacious and beautiful and the right thing to do all at the, all at the same time. But it is a thin line between bravery and stupidity. So, yeah, <laughs> I'm right there. Yeah, but, but it, you know, more more than anything else, it, it seems like um, you know probably one of the most worthwhile worthwhile pursuits. Right? Like I've, I've I've heard of organizations which are trying to you know walk the fine line, which is this, this balance between uh, what they're doing from a you know in, in a largely capitalist world and what they're doing from a larger good. But but this seems like a like a wonderful interpretation of that challenge and you also walk the talk a lot you know is what i understand uh so so coming to you know the the specific piece of um, ai for good right uh, what does that mean to you and, and what's been your experience with that there are three three focus areas on on the ai for good and you know we, i think we were extremely fortunate when the economist wrote a piece about us and called us an ai for good company so that's my propaganda slide. I flashed it everywhere. But on a, on a day-to-day basis, what it means, you know, is that there are three areas that um, I'm passionate about, along with my co-founder and my and my colleagues, and and those are uh, climate change. They are children's health, nutrition, and safety, and it's uh, it's uh, gender equity, specifically around uh, teen pregnancies, teen health, adolescent health. Um, that's that space. And so what we try and do there is we try and build um, casework in each of these spaces and then we take them to funders. Uh, it's basically doing work before we have, have investment or, or a client. Um, it's, it's extensive business development, if you will. Um, so I remember for the first time for one of our large clients, we essentially scanned all of Bihar uh, in India 
and we gave them details on what uh, a little over 700,000 teenage girls were talking about as it relates to abortion, as it relates to contraception, short-term contraception, everything from condoms to IUDs uh, to injectables. Uh, I learned a lot uh, in that process. But also you realize that, you know, that some of the choices and discussions and the sheer amount of knowledge that that is missing or is required and needed uh, in this space um, you know, drove us to that work. So AI for Good is using the machines we have to process the data so that a philanthropy or a government may take a better decision. Um, that's, that's, that's our best focus. Any, any interesting projects you, you've done which where the, uh, the results have sort of surprised you, intrigued you? You know, one of our favorite pieces of work was on climate change in the UK before the elections. I, I, won't, I won't share many details, hmm. but uh, the thing that surprised me in, in that particular project was uh, if, if you didn't experience climate change physically yourself, it honestly didn't matter if you were a believer, or but if you had flooding or if you saw a heat wave or if you saw um, you know, produce that didn't show up or um, a lack of bird song. You suddenly are like, oh, this thing is real. So it's amazing how, um, as human beings, while you know there's a ton of evidence in so many things, we can still be tactile, even at different uh, intellectual um, and education levels. Um, I found that across all, that if, if they experienced it, mm-hmm. they almost always believed that it didn't matter who they voted for. It didn't matter if they were right or left. And uh, that blew my mind, right? Because I always thought there was some kind of... Uh, Liberal conservative divide of this, and, and that's not that's not true. Yeah, you know, you know, as you as you talk about this, and and I know you you uh, Quilt has done some extraordinary work in the area of sustainability uh, and climate change. And thank you for reminding me about, about that article in the Economist. I think it was probably one of uh, uh, one of those articles post some of the work you've done in this space. I'm, I'm also equally, uh, you know. Uh, not bothered, but uh, sort of intrigued about um, who has access to data, right? Um, and we're, of course, living in the age of um, the post-Cambridge Analytica phase, right, so to say. What is, uh, and I, I know that you've been associated with, uh, with, with the area of, of big data and AI for, for the longest time. What is your, your take on um, governments and uh, people with the, with the, from a position of power, having access to this. I mean, I, I'm, I'm assuming that's both a good thing and a bad thing, but how do you see it? Look, I mean, uh, I think the, the, there, there is, that is, you know, be controversial about it. I would say people worry too much about this in some shape or form mm-hmm. because, you know, your data exists in the ecosystem in some shape or form. Yeah. Historically, it's ex- existed with the government, so whether you have the social security number US, um, or you have now the, you know, your Aadhaar card number, your PAN number in India, and some, you know, combination thereof, right? Your address, uh, and there are these patterns that existed from a governmental perspective. Um, And then they got embedded into sort of commercial life. So, you know, when when Karthik gets onto, or used to get onto Jet Airways, and uh, they said something nice about his frequent flyer status, he felt good. How does that happen? That happens because they've done some basic CRM with some data and given you, you know, a basic compliment. You check into a hotel that you've stayed at 55 times and they ask you, 
Oh, is this your first time, Mr. Karthik? It annoys you. Why does it annoy you? Because you're like, man, you have my data. At least do me the courtesy of saying welcome back. So I think the construct of data and there's a data privacy and a value continuum. You know, it shifts one way or the other every once in a while. So, you know, it, it exists uh, to provide value to us. And I'll give you my favorite data privacy story. In, two, you know, in the early 2000s, um, I know you're a fan of New York. You go there to write sometimes. So I, was, I just started working at American <laughs> Express. And on my first, first Friday, I showed up at a bar at 4 p.m. I had a job. I was like, this is amazing. And I bought a, I bought a $3 beer and then another $2 beer. And I was just getting into baseball. I was like, man, here's a sport that is as statistically heavy as cricket is. And I was having this intense conversation with the barman. And so, you know, I was about a $7, $8 bill, and I tipped him $10, and I, I felt great, I went home and slept. About a month and a half later, I'm back at the same bar, and I'm having a conversation, and uh, the barman remembers me, we had this chat, so clearly, that he knows something about me, and so he pours out uh, an IPA, which I was into, I'll have you know, before IPAs became technically cool, and we're having this <laughs> chat, and he says, don't worry, this one's, this one's, you know, we'll, um, I'll, I'll leave a tab open for you. It's like a tab? This feels like, you know, the mid-70s. How cool is that? So fast forward 19 years, I still have a tab at Bubby's in Tribeca in New York. I'll go back and I clear it and I always have a tab going on. And that's, that, that to me is such a cool story because I gave up a piece of me from a privacy perspective hmm. to get value in a certain way. Now, has it been abused? Of course. Are there things being done with data that they shouldn't be done? Of course. But... Um, by and large, you know, you use Facebook, I use Facebook. Um, it's a product. Um, we get to do certain things with it. They've got to make money in some shape or form. We can take political stances on this, philosophical stances on this. But the truth is, our, you know, you can't get a loan in the U.S. without without having a credit score. How do you get a credit score? You have to do that for it. So my point is, that should, should it be governed better? Yes. Should there, should there be protocols put in place? Yes. Should regulation be ahead of the curve? So this, of course, but uh, you you can't live without sharing data in some shape or form. Um, hmm. That that existence is you know it, it didn't exist fifty years ago, so it's it accelerated today. But this is something I, I don't think people should should fuss about. Yeah, I mean, I, I say this very cautiously, uh, but uh, I, you know, to the large part, I completely agree with what you said because I feel data privacy uh, is a I think it's a very broad brush. And we use to paint everything. Right? I think it, it really has to be a little bit more nuanced than that. Um, you know, I have people who write down their their full phone numbers and addresses, um, you know, in Lucky Dips and uh, um, uh, at the visitors book in um, in many different buildings that they go to during a day, and and then worry about um, a cookie that is in their browser whose function is to make sure that uh, the, the content they're consuming is, is relevant to them. Um, yeah, exactly. So uh, I, I feel in a, in a world without any data, I think uh, uh, information and this targeting would be extremely ineffective. And uh, I don't think that's, uh, uh, that, that's a great place to be as well. And of course, you know, I say this uh, very consciously about the, the perils of, of privacy as well. And of course, there has to be some level of, of, of consent in this. Hey, so this is this has been this has been interesting. Um, 
and uh, you know we wish you and uh, everyone at, at Quilt be safe and a successful rest of the year. Uh, but Anurag, we, we normally end the episode by uh, by asking our guest what he or she is listening to or watching or or, or reading. Uh, in that, I'm going to take a little detour with you because uh, I know that, uh, and I, I don't think this is really the AI cohort. Uh, but you have a, a great passion for poetry as well, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, guilty. Tell us, tell us a little bit more about that story. And uh, I've heard of these these legendary exchanges between you and uh, and a certain Vikram Seth. Uh, tell us a little bit more about about this side view, which I don't think most people know. You know, Vikram Seth is, is a soul crushing human being, and um, I've never met him. But uh, and I say this completely in jest. Um, you know, several decades ago, like every other uh, teenage Bengali boy, I, I pretended to write poetry, and my poetry was particularly bad. I think my parents humored it. Um, I got published in a couple of newspapers here and there, but uh, nothing, nothing of consequence. And uh, Mr. Seth had just come out with this beautiful book called Golden Gate, which is this novel in, in verse. If you haven't read it, you should. It's uh, it's uh, iambic pentameter sonnets, uh, really, really uh, well done. And I was so taken up by it. I read the book, I think, you know, 10 or 12 times. And then I wrote a poem, uh, at six sonnets worth, and a cover letter. And I posted it to Vikram said, I think, to Random House. Uh, this is in the mid, early, early 90s, I'm saying. And, you know, off it went, snail mail, um, prior to my first Hotmail account even, um, and about a month and a half later, a letter shows up in, in you know, um, scraggy handwriting. And it's a uh, letter from Vikram Seth, which basically, you know, the line that is sort of seared in my mind says, um, you have no rhyme. Rhythm by itself is not enough. <laughs> Good Lord. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, he goes on to say, you're, you're, you're a brave kid and, you know, I wish you, I wish you luck. Just don't write any more poetry. And uh, so uh, I haven't written. Um, anything. I mean, I was never very good, as I, as I said at the very beginning. But I love reading it. I actually was reading his Beastly Tales book to my to my daughter a few uh, few evenings ago. And uh, he's a clever, clever writer. He's uh, I think his verse is way better than his prose. Um, but yeah, that's my that's my brush with uh, that's <laughs> that my is, brush with Vikram. He doesn't even know I exist. I'm sure, but <laughs> that is some story. Some story. Um, hey, anything? Anything? You? I, I know that. Uh, you know, you like me like to read multiple things at the same time. Anything you're reading that's uh, that's interesting that you would like to suggest to, uh, to this audience? You know, I I I, I read um, I read yeah you know, I have a, I'm, I have ADD, so I read four or five books at the same time, and sometimes I complete them. Um, so I'll give you three three thoughts. Um, one is in a, a book that my ten year old recommended called The Inquisitor's Tale by Adam Gitwitz. It's um, it's an interesting uh, write-up of the Crusades, which is such a bloody period, but it's done beautifully from a children's perspective. Also, you know, some interesting illustrations in there, but it's actually a good read for, for adults. Uh, I enjoyed that. And now I'm splitting my time. I think the last time you and I spoke, Karthik, we briefly talked about Shoe Dog. Um, yeah. And I went back and I, I just, you know, I, I pick up different pages and I read them. And I read uh, the piece in, in, in Bill Knight's book about Steve Prefontaine, that runner, right, um, dying. 
and how it, how it twisted his life completely upside down. And at the same time, I'm reading a book by this uh, young kid who's no more um, called Marina Thielen. It's a book called The Opposite of Loneliness. Hmm. And uh, it's extraordinarily powerful. I mean, she died at 21 in a car crash. Um, the strength and the power of her writing is, uh, is spectacular. So, yeah, that's, that's you know, um, and then I've got some other boring business books, but uh, uh, <laughs> I, I think the, the opposite of loneliness would be a, would be a good recommendation. Uh, <laughs> no, that's, that's a fascinating list. I'm, I'm going to check out a couple of them. But, yeah, I, I do recommend, the, I, I do remember that, that conversation on Shoe Dog. I, I just realized after we spoke that um, I bought this book in a discount sale. And I didn't realize up until recently that I actually bought, uh, this of course is Phil Knight's memoir, the founder of Nike. I bought uh, the Young Readers edition. Uh, you know, much of what I read these days is, uh, is, is you know, near uh, and far political history. And uh, given that, I, I really enjoyed the, the breeziness of the, the Young Readers edition of this book. But even in that, I, I got to say that I, I really thought it's, uh, it's, it's a very well-written book. Which, which memoirs very rarely are, of course. You know, there, are, there have been books like Open by Agassi, but most of the other memoirs are more about the anecdote and not so much about the writing. I really enjoy the writing in this one. This is extraordinary. I mean, I, what a life to have traveled and done business in Japan, to <laughs> be faced down with loans that are crazy, the US government suing him for like random import duties. Uh, I mean, just, just yeah, epic. And, and uh, you, you're, you're there with him. You're there with him in Japan, Mount Fuji. We're there in a small house. You know, and he goes running to clear his head. You see his fights with you know, uh, uh, his wife. It's, uh, it's spectacular. I'm, uh, I'm, uh, I, I, I should read the book again, I think. Uh, <laughs> all, all of it. <laughs> yes, yes. Excellent. Hey, thank you so much for your recommendation. And thank you so much for sharing you know, the journey of Quill.ai with us. I wish uh, you and Quilt, um, you know, the best of luck for the rest of the year. Uh, stay safe and thanks for your time. Thanks, Kartik. Uh, it was a pleasure chatting with you again. Take care. Bye. Cheers. So that was our show. If you like this podcast, don't forget to check out other interesting podcasts on the IBM network. You can listen to us on the IBM podcast app or ibmpodcasts.com. You can also follow us on our social media we are at IVM Podcasts on Twitter and Instagram. And if you want to reach out to me, I am the underscore Karthik. That's Karthik with an H on Twitter. And filter underscore coffee. That's coffee with a K on Instagram. <laughs>